Section number nine of the Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick Wallace. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men and Things by William Hazlitt. Section nine on Londoners and Country People. Part two. Mr. Smith and the Brangtons in Evelina are the finest possible examples of the spirit of Cockneyism. I once knew a linen draper in the city who owned to me he did not quite like this part of Miss Burney's novel. He said, I myself lodge in a first floor where there are young ladies in the house. They sometimes have company, and if I am out they ask me to lend them the use of my apartment, which I readily do out of politeness, or if it is an agreeable party I perhaps join them. All this is so like what passes in the novel that I fancy myself a sort of second Mr. Smith, and am not quite easy at it. This was mentioned to the fair authoress, and she was delighted to find that her characters were so true that an actual person fancied himself to be one of them. The resemblance, however, was only in the externals, and the real modesty of the individual stumbled on the likeness to a city coxcomb. It is curious to what a degree persons brought up in certain occupations in a great city are shut up from a knowledge of the world, and carry their simplicity to a pitch of unheard-of extravagance. London is the only place in which the child grows completely up into the man. I have known characters of this kind, which, in the way of childish ignorance and self-pleasing delusion, exceeded anything to be met with in Shakespeare, or Ben Jonson, or the old comedy. For instance, the following may be taken as a true sketch. Imagine a person with a florid, shining complexion like a ploughboy, large staring teeth, a merry eye, his hair stuck into the fashion with curling irons and pomatum, a slender figure, and a decent suit of black. Add to which the thoughtlessness of the schoolboy, and the forwardness of the thriving tradesman, and the plenary consciousness of the citizen of London, and you have... Mr. Dunster before you, the fishmonger in the poultry. You shall hear how he chirps over his cups and exults in his private opinions. I'll play no more with you, I said. Mr. Dunster, you are five points in the game better than I am. I had just lost three half-crown rubbers at cribbage to him, which loss of mine he presently thrust into a canvas pouch, not a silk purse, out of which he had produced just before, first a few halfpence then half a dozen pieces of silver, then a handful of guineas, and lastly, lying perdu at the bottom, a fifty-pound banknote. "'I'll tell you what,' I said. "'I should like to play you a game at marbles.' This was at a sort of Christmas party, or twelfth-night merrymaking. "'Marbles?' said Dunster, catching up the sound, and his eye brightening with childish glee. "'What? You mean ring-tor?' "'Yes.' I should beat you at it to a certainty. I was one of the best in our school. It was at Clapham, sir. The Reverend Mr. Denman's at Clapham was the place where I was brought up, though there were two others there better than me. They were the best that ever were, I'll tell you, sir. I'll give you an idea. There was a water-butt or cistern, sir, at our school that turned with a cock. Now, suppose that brass ring that the window curtain is fastened to to be the cock, and that these boys were standing where we are, about twenty feet off. Well, sir, I'll tell you what I've seen them do. One of them had a favourite tour, 
or alley as we used to call them, he'd take aim at the cock of the system with his marble as I may do now. Well, sir, will you believe it? Such was his strength and knuckle of certainty of aim, he'd hit it, turn it, let the water out, and then, sir, when the water had run out as much as it was wanted, the other boy, he just the same strength and knuckle and certainty of eye, he'd aim at it too. Be sure to hit it, turn it round, and stop the water from running out. Yes, what I tell you is very remarkable, but it's true. One of these boys was named Cock and t'other Butler. They might have been named Spigot and Fawcett, my dear sir, from your account of them. I shouldn't mind playing you at fives, neither, though I'm out of practice. I think I should beat you in a week. I was a real good one at that. A pretty game, sir. I had the finest ball that I suppose ever was seen. Made it myself. I'll tell you how, sir. You see, I put a piece of cork at the bottom, then I wound some fine worsted yarn round it, then I had to bind it round with some fine pack thread, and then sew the case on. You'd hardly believe it, but I was the envy of the old school for that ball. They all wanted to get it from me, but, Lord, sir, I would let none of them come near it. I kept it in my waistcoat pocket all day, and at night I used to take it to bed with me and put it under my pillow. I couldn't sleep easy without it. The same idle vein might be found in the country, but I doubt whether it would find a tongue to give it utterance. Cockneyism is a ground of native shallowness mounted with pertness and conceit. Yet with all this simplicity and extravagance in dilating upon his favourite topics, Dunster is a man of spirit, of attention to business, knows how to make out and get in his bills, and is far from being henpecked. One thing is certain, that such a man must be a true Englishman and a loyal subject. He has a slight tinge of letters, with shame I confess it, has in his possession a volume of the European magazine for the year 1761, and is an humble admirer of Tristram Shandy, particularly the story of the King of Bohemia and his seven castles, which is something in his own endless manner, and of Gilles Blas of Saint-Yanne. Over these, the last thing before he goes to bed at night, he smokes a pipe and meditates for an hour. After all, what is there in these harmless half-lies, these fantastic exaggerations, but a literal, prosaic, Cockney translation of the admired lines in Gray's Ode to Eton College. What idle progeny succeed to chase the rolling circle's speed or urge the flying ball? A man shut up all his life in his shop, without anything to interest him from one year's end to another but the cares and details of business, with scarcely any intercourse with books or opportunities for society, distracted with the buzz and glare and noise about him, turns for relief to the retrospect of his childish years. And there, through the long vista, at one bright loophole, leading out of the thorny mazes of the world into the clear morning light, he sees the idle fancies and gay amusements of his boyhood dancing like motes in the sunshine. Shall we blame or shall we laugh at him, if his eye glistens and his tongue grows wanton in their praise? None but a Scotchman would, that pragmatical sort of personage who thinks it a folly ever to have been young, and who, instead of dallying with the frail past, bends his brows upon the future and looks only to the main chance. Forgive me, dear Dunster, if I have drawn a sketch of some of thy venial foibles, and delivered thee into the hands of these cockneys of the north, who will fall upon thee and devour thee like so many cannibals, 
without a grain of salt. If familiarity in cities breeds contempt, ignorance in the country breeds aversion and dislike. People come too much in contact in town, in other places they live too much apart to unite cordially and easily. Our feelings in the former case are dissipated and exhausted by being called into constant and vain activity. In the latter they rust and grow dead for want of use. If there is an air of levity and indifference in London manners, there is a harshness, a moroseness, and disagreeable restraint in those of the country. We have little disposition to sympathy when we have few persons to sympathise with. We lose the relish and capacity for social enjoyment the seldomer we meet. A habit of sullenness, coldness, and misanthropy grows upon us. If we look for hospitality and a cheerful welcome in country places, it must be in those where the arrival of a stranger is an event, the recurrence of which need not be greatly apprehended, or it must be on rare occasions, on some high festival of once a year. Then, indeed, the stream of hospitality, so long dammed up, may flow without stint for a short season, or a stranger may be expected with some sort of eager impatience, as a caravan of wild beasts, or any other natural curiosity, that excites our wonder and fills up the craving of the mind after novelty. By degrees, however, even this last principle loses its effect. Books, newspapers, whatever carries us out of ourselves into a world of which we see and know nothing, become distasteful, repulsive, and we turn away with indifference or disgust from everything that disturbs our lethargic animal existence, or takes off our attention from our petty local interests and pursuits. Man, left long to himself, is no better than a mere clod, or his activity, for want of some other vent, preys upon himself, or is directed to splenetic, peevish dislikes, or vexatious, harassing persecution of others. I once drew a picture of a country life. It was a portrait of a particular place, a caricature, if you will, but with certain allowances I fear it was too like in the individual instance, and that it will hold too generally true. If these, then, are the faults and vices of the inhabitants of town or of the country, where should a man go to live so as to escape from them? I answer that in the country we have the society of the groves, the fields, the brooks, and in London a man may keep to himself or choose his company as he pleases. It appears to me that there is an amiable mixture of these two opposite characters in a person who chances to have passed his youth in London, and who is retired into the country for the rest of his life. We may find in such a one a social polish, a pastoral simplicity. He rusticates agreeably, and vegetates with a degree of sentiment. He comes to the next post-town to see for letters, watches the coaches as they pass, and eyes the passengers with a look of familiar curiosity, thinking that he too was a gay fellow in his time. He turns his horse's head down the narrow lane that leads homewards, puts on an old coat to save his wardrobe, and fills his glass nearer to the brim. As he lifts the purple juice to his lips and to his eye, and in the dim solitude that hems him round, thinks of the glowing line, This bottles the sun of our table, another sun rises upon his imagination. The sun of his youth, the blaze of vanity, the glitter of the metropolis, glares around his soul and mocks his closing eyelids. 
the distant roar of coaches is in his ears the pit stare upon him with a thousand eyes mrs siddons bannister king are before him he starts as from a dream and swears he will to london but the expense the length of way deters him and he rises the next morning to trace the footsteps of the hare that has brushed the dewdrops from the lawn or to attend a meeting of magistrates mr justice shallow answered in some sort to this description of a retired cockney and indigenous country gentleman he knew the inns of court where they would talk of mad shallow yet and where the bonarobas were and had them at commandment ay and had heard the chimes at midnight it is a strange state of society such as that in london where a man does not know his next-door neighbour and where the feelings one would think must recoil upon themselves and either fester or become obtuse mr wordsworth in the preface to his poem of the excursion represents men in cities as so many wild beasts or evil spirits shut up in cells of ignorance without natural affections and barricadoed down in sensuality and selfishness the nerve of humanity is bound up according to him the circulation of the blood stagnates and it would be so if men were merely cut off from intercourse with their immediate neighbours and did not meet together generally and more at large but man in london becomes as mr burke has it a sort of public creature he lives in the eye of the world and the world in his if he witnesses less of the details of private life he has better opportunities of observing its larger masses and varied movements he sees the stream of human life pouring along the streets its comforts and embellishments piled up in the shops the houses are proofs of the industry the public buildings of the art and magnificence of man while the public amusements and places of resort are a centre and support for social feeling a playhouse alone is a school of humanity where all eyes are fixed on the same gay or solemn scene where smiles or tears are spread from face to face and where a thousand hearts beat in unison look at the company in a country theatre in comparison and see the coldness the sullenness the want of sympathy and the way in which they turn round to scan and scrutinise one another in london there is a public and each man is part of it we are gregarious and affect the kind we have a sort of abstract existence and a community of ideas and knowledge rather than local proximity is the bond of society and good fellowship this is one great cause of the tone of political feeling in large and populous cities there is here a visible body politic a type and image of that huge leviathan the state we comprehend that vast denomination the people of which we see a tenth part daily moving before us and by having our imaginations emancipated from petty interests and personal dependence we learn to venerate ourselves as men and to respect the rights of human nature therefore it is that the citizens and freemen of london and westminster are patriots by prescription philosophers and politicians by the right of their birthplace in the country men are no better than a herd of cattle or scattered deer they have no idea but of individuals none of rights or principles and a king as the greatest individual is the highest idea they can form he is a species alone and as superior to any single peasant as the latter is to the peasant's dog or to a crow flying over his head in london the king is but one to a million numerically speaking is seldom seen 
and then distinguished only from others by the superior graces of his person. A country squire, or a lord of the manor, is a greater man in his village or hundred. End of section 9 Recording by Patrick Wallace